Good morning, church. My name is Scott Gilliland, and I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. And as we continue in this uh, new year and as we uh, begin the Epiphany season, we are continuing in a sermon series that we began last week with Bishop Miyambo uh, called United We Love. Uh, and when we, when we cast vision for this sermon series, we, we plan sermon series uh, months, if not even a full year in advance. And when we, when we made plans for this collection of messages, we could not have anticipated uh, how relevant or pertinent, or maybe even some would say ironic, uh, the title uh, of this series is. Uh, we just heard Pastor Stan talk about this protocol and an amicable separation. And so I think this Sunday and the Sundays to come, it's a perfect time, perfect season for us to stop and begin to consider what it is that does unite us as United Methodists, the people called United Methodists. What are those qualities and those ideals that we cling to that drive us that we know come from God? To help us in this conversation, we are going to turn our attention this morning to the story of an unlikely hero in the Old Testament, a young immigrant widow named Ruth who joins the great story of God's love for the people of Israel. Ruth's story is surprising, and it's unorthodox, and I believe ultimately it is instructive for us today as we consider who we are meant to be as the people of God. Ruth's story begins with tremendous loss. Have you ever had a story in your life begin with tremendous loss? As the result of famine, an older woman, Naomi, and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are widowed. Naomi decides to return to the city of her family, the city of Bethlehem, in hopes that perhaps there she can find security in her family. Naomi encourages Orpah and Ruth to do the same, to go to their homeland of Moab, a neighboring kingdom. This would have been expected of them to do. Orpah takes her up on the offer and sets off for Moab, but Ruth chooses a different path. As we read in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, it says this, Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me, and more so if even death separates me from you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. Have you ever known somebody who had that look in their eye when you just knew you needed to stop talking? That was Ruth. If we want to understand the power of Ruth's story, though, we, we have to first understand the gravity of Ruth's situation. Widows living in Ruth and Naomi's time would have felt hopeless, without value, as though their future had died along with their husbands. They could not own land. 
They would have had no social standing. Her best hope would have been to return home to Moab so that perhaps a male relative would take her into his home, or perhaps greater still, she could remarry and have a family with her new husband. But that's not the life that she chooses. She stays. In fact, the word that's used is the Hebrew word dabak, the word that means to, to cling, like a spouse clings to their partner. It's the language we find in Genesis chapter 2, an inseparable kind of intimate love. Ruth chooses an incredibly reckless, loving loyalty when no one would have expected it from her. And I believe it's the kind of loyalty that is found in the heart of God. We serve a God whose love is as relentless as Ruth's. God's heart for you, hear me church, God's heart for you is like her heart for Naomi. And when it makes sense for others to leave, God's love is loyal. But it's not enough to simply receive God's loyalty. We have to ask ourselves how we'll respond to this loyalty. One of the things that unites us as a local church is our legacy, yes, at Lover's Lane. Our first full-time senior pastor, Tom Shipp, was a visionary leader, and early in his ministry here, he cast a vision for the kind of church he hoped Lover's Lane would be, and we actually have these words printed on our wall outside these doors. To the right as you leave, you can see them for yourself. You may have heard these words before, but there's a phrase that we don't normally uplift that I'd like to center on this morning. Here's what he said. Let us make this church an institution that stands, as we say, four square, for what is right, what is just, what is fair, what is of good report, an institution in which there are no shams, no make-believe, no halfway measures, where thoroughness and straightforwardness are taught and practiced. May those within this church have high integrity, be faithful to ideals, dependable, true friends of others, and loyal to Jesus. It's that last phrase, loyal to Jesus. I've been thinking about what that means this week, especially in light of the news that we've received about our denomination. I think that loyalty to Jesus means making difficult decisions that may be hard for some folks to understand because you're choosing Jesus over what is expected or even the easy thing to do. Tom chose loyalty to Jesus. Tom Ship chose loyalty to Jesus when he made ministry with alcoholics a core part of his mission and ministry in the 40s and 50s. Tom Shipp chose loyalty to Jesus when he invited Ms. Bernice Jones to join the church as the first African-American member of Lover's Lane in Dallas in 1961 when the spirit of segregation was alive and well. More recently, we as a congregation have chosen loyalty to Jesus by living into our mission statement of loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. Loyalty to Jesus leads us to mission, to the Naomi's of our lives, who are not just people in need, hear me clearly, they are not just people in need, but they are people who we need to complete us as the body of Christ. 
As United Methodists, we could be loyal to a great many things. We could be loyal to money or to property like this beautiful sanctuary or to cultural expectations, to our own personal egos, say amen somebody. But I hear God calling us to something greater. I hear God calling us once again to be loyal to Jesus and to Jesus' mission in the world. My prayer is that while others may choose to leave, those of us who continue to call ourselves United Methodists would be re-centered on our mission together, that we would cling to one another as a global body of Christians as Ruth clings to Naomi. But the story continues as Ruth begins to consider what life will look like as a widow in Israel. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Now Naomi had a respected relative, a man of worth, through her husband from the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field so that I may glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose eyes I might find favor. Naomi replied to her, Go, my daughter. So she went. She arrived and she gleaned in the field behind the harvesters. By chance, it happened to be the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the family of Elimelech. Gleaning. Gleaning was a technical term for the people of Israel. It was essentially a system of social welfare where harvesters would take up the crop in their first pass. If you were a landowner, you would send the harvesters out to bring in the harvest, but they would not go through the crops for a second harvest. Instead, they would leave behind whatever was dropped or left on the plants. No harvester is perfect, right? Then the poor and the widows and the orphans and the outcasts, they would be permitted to scavenge whatever they could find and keep for themselves to live on. A meager existence, yes, but a godsend for those in need. Ruth is proposing to Naomi that she be allowed to glean in one of the nearby fields, which while it could mean the survival of these two women, it was also an incredibly risky proposition for a young woman like Ruth, who would be even more vulnerable in a place usually visited by physically capable men. Ruth's story is a helpful reminder that when we are united in love by the mission of God, we invite risk into our lives. And while many times we receive the blessing out of that risk, like Ruth finding Boaz in a gleaning field, we can also feel the sting of pain that comes with risking ourselves and our hearts for God's mission. Have you ever felt that before? This past couple of weeks have not just been uh, a time of national headlines for me and for many in our church. It's, it's also been a time in a season of grief and pain as we learned of the tragic death of one of our young adults, a young man named Sam Butler. I believe we'll see his picture on the screens. Sam was in his mid-twenties, and he passed away. There's Sam. He was a regular attender in Thrive Worship, which Reagan and I normally are in. Sam was in his mid-twenties, and he passed away in a tragic accident two weeks ago. And even as I'm preaching to you today, I still have not fully grasped and grappled with the reality of his death. I'm slow to process this kind of stuff. 
A couple of years ago, I I received an email from Sam that I want to read for you this morning. Sam said this, Hey, Scott, I moved to Dallas a little under a year ago, and admittedly, I hadn't been searching for a church too hard. I was and still am sort of figuring out exactly what I believe after asking questions about the very foundation of the things I'd spent my previous 22 years regarding as unshakable truth. And it felt like there wasn't a church that emphasized the things I wanted to know and talk about. So a few weeks ago, I started looking, seeing as how I'm still in limbo as far as my theological positions. Sam was a thinker. I knew I wanted to find a place that hammered home the importance of love. That's it. Love for everyone, of any identity, of any color, from any place. I've watched the live stream for a few weeks now, and I really like what you've said. And while I wasn't able to go to Parkland Moves Us, this was an event, a dialogue night that we hosted here at Lover's Lane following the shooting at Stoneman Douglas, He said, as much as I wanted to go, I watched that online as well, to not only address this massive gun violence issue, but to encourage open dialogue about it in a church that blew me away. Safe to say, I'm going to be visiting in person soon, hopefully on Easter. Before I did, though, I just wanted to reach out and say thanks. It's been a breath of fresh air to find a church that cares about people in an actionable, legitimate sense. All that's to say, I'm grateful. I've been close to punting church as a whole, but I'm genuinely excited to check out LLUMC in person. See you soon, probably. Sam did start coming to Lover's Lane. He, he joined the church and was a regular attender in Thrive, and he became an irreplaceable member in our young adult ministry and started volunteering as a small group leader for our eighth grade boys and even went on mission trip to Puerto Rico. Oh, I think we have a picture of him with the mission trip team there as well. It's not bad for a young man who wasn't sure he wanted to go back to church, Right? Our church is missing someone integral this week, this month, and for the years to come. Our young adult ministry sent almost 15 people to his hometown in Alabama for the funeral this past week. Can you believe that? A bunch of young adults hopped into a 15-passenger van and drove 10 hours there, went to the funeral and drove 10 hours back. That's the kind of love he received here at Lover's Lane. And I, and I told the young adults that as many questions as we have about this, one question we shouldn't have is whether Sam made peace with his Savior. He did. And the reason he was able to understand Jesus' love better was because of you, the people of Lover's Lane. This church changes lives, lives like Sam's. And a question I've wanted to ask the young adults, and I will when I gather with them sometime soon, is knowing everything you know, all the heartbreak, all the heartache, was it worth it? Is the risk worth it? Was the risk of letting Sam into your lives worth it? It's worth it to me. Even with the pain his passing has brought me, I am so grateful for the gift of Sam.
I'm grateful for his skeptical questions, right? Who writes an email to a pastor talking about their theological positions in the first email? I'm grateful for his cynical smile, for his willingness to play basketball with a bunch of eighth graders with B.O. I'm grateful for his comfortability to come to church with a worn-out auburn sweatshirt and a not-so-worn-out Bible. I'm grateful for every tear that I will shed for him because I'm better for, having, I'm better for him having been in my life and in our church. It's risky being in Christian community. I'm going to say that again because it's true. It's risky being in Christian community. We bear ourselves to one another. We share our hearts and our souls and our passions with one another. We allow ourselves to become vulnerable as we venture into the gleaning fields. And sometimes we come back with a plentiful bounty. And sometimes we come back with hands holding only pain. Another prayer of mine for our larger church is that we would continue to be a church that risks in our relationship with one another. That we would be so committed to our mission together as the people of God that we would be willing to risk our hearts and ourselves knowing that with the joy and the victory comes the pain and the loss. But it's in the gleaning fields, church. It's in the risky places where God's power and presence are so frequently revealed. The story of Ruth concludes with her marriage to this Boaz who owns the field, a man as righteous as she is, worthy of a woman whose love knows no limits. In this way, Ruth again reflects the love of God as her story grows from one of a simple widow to become the story of how a foreign Moabite woman would become a member of the royal Jewish lineage. Ruth and Boaz will have a son named Obed, who becomes the grandfather of King David. Now, while the idea of a Moabite widow being the great-grandmother of King David may not be earth-shattering for us today, at the time, this would have been borderline scandal for a people who had long understood themselves as the exclusive people of God. The people of Israel had been in wars with the kingdom of Moab. They worshipped different gods. They may have well have been from different planets. But it's a Moabite woman whom God chooses to include, not because of where she was born, but rather because of how she loved. Speaking of the kingdom of Moab, I decided to look it up on a map. Does anybody else enjoy Wikipedia? I specifically wanted to see how far away Moab is from Bethlehem, the city of Naomi and Boaz and eventually King David. The capital city of Moab was a town named Dibon, and you see it on your screens there, and, and, and Bethlehem is literally just to the south of Jerusalem. They're like twin cities. And, and I plotted the distance between Dibon and Bethlehem, and, and it's, they're about as far apart as Dallas and Denton. Yes, that Denton, Denton, Texas, the one up the road, Dallas and Denton. Now, imagine that one day Stan got up to preach and said, folks, I've been doing some praying, right? Now, this is a good Stan impersonation. You've got to laugh at this. And I believe that God wants to include people from Denton in the life of the church. Would you be shocked? Would you be angry? Would you write a sternly worded email to the bishop? I went to University of North Texas. I feel like I'm a bit of a Dentonite myself. Any other mean green in the room this morning? There we go. Eagle claws up. Am I welcome here? 
As silly as this may sound to us, I wonder what United Methodists in a hundred years, five hundred years, God willing, a thousand years, will think of our current debates. It seems to me that the question of who to include in the story of God and the life of the church has been an ever-widening circle to include Moabite widows and Dentonite preachers and African people and LGBTQ people and North Dallasites and whoever else is willing to go into the gleaning fields for God's mission. Ruth's story reminds us that though we can turn away and keep out, God always turns toward and takes in. Last week, we received communion, as every good Methodist church does on the first Sunday of the month. Amen? Amen. And when we receive communion in the Methodist church, and we're blessing the sacraments, you hear words that I'm sure you've heard many times before if you've been a Methodist for any time at all. You hear words being prayed that say this, Holy Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. All the world. All the world. Are we prepared for God to send us good United Methodists into ministry to all the world? Maybe you wouldn't mind God sending you to a different corner of the world, but that's not what we say. We say all the world. Are you ready for God to send you in ministry to the coworker that you can't stand? to the Trump supporter who lives next door, to the Bernie crat who blows up your Facebook feed? Are you ready to be sent in ministry to the LGBTQ person whom you don't really understand or the immigrant whose culture is not your own? Are you ready? Are we ready? Am I ready? When we ask God to send us in ministry to all the world, we need to be prepared to be sent into whatever gleaning field God sees fit. We can't get picky with the mission of God can we, church? And praise be to God for that. You know why? Because we are all a product of God's mission. We are all scavenged morsels of the gleaning field. Somebody at some point in time sent to you by the mission of God, and praise be to God that they listened to the Holy Spirit and proved loyal to Jesus. Loyalty will cost us something, church. It may cost us money, or property, or God willing, our egos. But if we can have Jesus and his mission in return, then I say, so be it. And if the risk that comes with Christian community means that we may feel pain, but the gleaning field, my friends, the gleaning field is ripe. And the Holy Spirit has commissioned us to glean. So may we once again be reminded of who we are as United Methodists who gather around a table of grace, who sing songs of praise to a God who found us in the gleaning field. May we remember who we are and who we are called to be. And may we praise God for the unity that we find not in who we are or what we do, but in how God loves us and invites all of us into God's great story of love. Amen.